Hey, Lauren. Hi, Sam. Are you ready to talk about Pan's Labyrinth? I am, because after all, we are the watchers of movies. Hey, Lauren, knock, knock. (laughs) Who's there? Pan. Pan who? Pan from Pan's Labyrinth. (laughs) Mike told me that joke a long time ago. It's gold. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You don't like it? It's, um, could probably use some work. (laughs) What, what else would you do to it? Comedy. You're a comedy writer now. (laughs) I lied. Actually, it was the best joke I've ever heard. I don't trust you anymore. (laughs) So we're back. We're back. Oh, that was really loud. So I watched um, Scream 4 while I was getting ready today. And um, I love that series. It's like all about like, like, <laughs> like movies, like, like killers in movies and like how like the killers in Scream will like emulate the killers in movies. Like, cause it's satirical, you know? Um, but I'm like, man, every time I watch it, I just like love it more and more, you know? Yeah. Who's in Scream 4? Is there anybody from the original? Yeah. <clears throat> Courtney Cox is in it, and David Arquette, and Neve Campbell. Because Neve Campbell plays Sydney Prescott, and she's like a final girl, you know? Like, I don't know if you're familiar with a final girl is. Yeah, like the last person that the killer doesn't kill. Yeah. That he, like, leaves alive. Yeah. And she she lives through all of them. But the, okay. the rest of them are, like, staple characters, so they always survive, too. Even if they get hurt, they end up being okay. So... I yeah. see. Is there only four, are there only four of them? Uh, yeah. Unless they're making a fifth one. But this one had like Emma Roberts and like Hayden Panettiere and like um, who else was in it? Uh, Rory Culkin's in it and there's one other famous person who am I thinking of? I don't know. Oh, like like all these like <laughs> like Allison Breeze in it. Like all these people who I was like. Oh, I had no idea that this person was in this movie, you know? Yeah. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it's like the it's like Scream 4 is like the new generation for like Scream, you know? So Didn't, like I can't remember his name, Doofy or Daffy be- Dewey? end up being the killer. Um Dewey? Dewey, the cop, David Arquette? No. What am I? Oh, I think they spoofed that in Scary Movie. Yeah, I think so too. And he ended up being like uh, Kevin Spacey's character in. uh, Yeah, he was like he came across as like really no uh, the um oh my god um unusual usual suspects. I know exactly who you're talking what you're talking about the usual suspects. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, in this, no, it wasn't. Okay, I was conflating the two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's fun. It's a fun series. I think his name was Doofy in Scary Movie, actually. So yeah. that's probably why that all fell in. But anyway, I don't think I've seen Scream 4. I've definitely seen Scream. 
and maybe scream two, maybe, but not scream four. I usually give up on franchises (laughs) (laughs) more than three movies. (laughs) But we do have a mini topic before we get into the movie. We do. Did you write down any pet peeves or you decided not to do any? I thought we could just do yours. Okay, because I have a shit ton of them. So, (laughs) are you ready? Yes. My first one is using actors famous for super iconic roles for roles that should really go to unknowns. Yeah, that's a really good one. Emma Watson in Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) But I also think that about, like, making Henry Cavill Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And, yeah. There's so many examples of this because I think it's 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 as if the producers know that the movie can't stand on its own for some reason, so they have to boost it with star power, and that's really annoying because you can't see the person as the character they're playing, you know, a lot of the right. time. Well, like, we've talked about, like, Chris Pratt and stuff, and it's like... It's like, I'm not a big fan of Chris Pratt because every movie he's in, it's always like, he just Chris Pratt's it up. You know what I mean? Like, it's like he has a certain style and that certain style is Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec and it doesn't really seem to expand beyond that. You know, like even Star-Lord was a little bit like Andy Dwyer. So, yeah, no. Yeah, I I think that's a really good pet peeve because it's um, it's so it seems so obvious sometimes. Like, oh, this person was cast because you had X amount of money, and instead of you know putting it towards effects and a lead, you did you hired hired this person so you could have one big name on your poster or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's. Yeah, it, it, it's like, well, and if you're, if you're watching a movie and you know that a certain person is going to be in it, then you're going to have certain expectations of how that movie is going to go and how that person's going to act because you know, you're familiar with their work. So you're like, oh, okay, so it's a Tom Cruise movie. Got it. Right. Understand. Yeah. yeah. A good example of that is also Robert Downey Jr. in the new Dr. Doolittle movie, which oh. I never saw. Um, but I feel like the only reason that movie got greenlit was because they were like, well, we got Robert Downey Jr. to do it. And so that's a good example of like, just a movie that was purely made to make money on his name, I think. And a little bit on the Dr. Doolittle like franchise for any hardcore Dr. Doolittle fans that are out there. But I I seriously think that like they could have put out probably a perfectly passable family movie with an unknown and that, and it would have made probably the same amount of money or maybe just a little bit less because like Robert Downey Jr.'s star power is probably going to bring more people out than normal, but not enough to no. for them to justify why they made a movie like that and they put Iron Man in it, you know? Yeah. As I've said before, if you are going into a movie with a certain actor in it, you're going to have certain expectations of how that movie is going to go based on what you've already seen of that actor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You want them to be Robert Downey Jr., not Dr. Doolittle. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or exactly. Iron Man or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's uh it's like 
it's like what's what's the issue in casting an unknown especially and especially in like in a big time you know like, like how disney is doing with all these remakes and everything like with a big time remake like beauty and the beast <laughs> which i'm still salty over and i will never not be salty over it um you know, why are you casting Emma Watson, who's so famous for playing Hermione in Harry Potter? She's just going to play the same fucking character. Yeah, I think I so. think when you when you drill down on it, what your point is, the point that you're making, which I totally agree with, is if you already have an actress who is famous for a very iconic role, why give them multiple iconic roles? Yep, exactly. Like, like casting Robert Downey Jr., and just a, a normal story movie, totally fine. But what you're doing is you're giving him another arc, iconic role, or in your case, Emma Watson. And I totally agree with that because it's like, oh, you know him as Iron Man. You know him as Sherlock Holmes. Now he's Dr. Doolittle. It's like, why does he need so many? Yeah. You know, no, that uh, like, is exactly you just it. confuse the, the iconic roles with each other. Well, and then, and then at a certain point, it doesn't even become like Robert Downey Jr. as Dr. Doolittle. It's Iron Man as Dr. Doolittle, you yeah. know, it's mm -hmm. Hermione as Belle. Like it's, it's not, it's not the actor. It's what, it's their star power. And you said that before. So I'm just reiterating, but <laughs> it's, <clears throat> it drives me nuts. There's 8 billion people in the world and you can't find one other person that's going to be better for this role than who you've cast like I have a hard time believing that and that's why I think Cinderella did so well well I know Beauty and the Beast did well even though it was garbage and I will never not be salty over it <laughs> um, Cinderella was awesome like Cinderella was Cinderella great was so good and what they did with Cinderella is they actually made a movie version of another movie instead of trying to just recreate the same movie exactly so i think like craft was a lot of it as well i think beauty and the beast failed on multiple levels yeah where cinderella succeeded and but to your point yes lily james was a really great cinderella and i had no like no idea who she was before i didn't cinderella. either i had no idea i remember like seeing um like a behind the scenes picture of like she was like riding a horse so i didn't like i wasn't actually able to see her face and this it's like in a magazine or something and they're like, Lily James is Cinderella. And I was like, who's that? I've never even heard of that person. But then when I saw it, I loved her so much as Cinderella that I was like, she's perfect. She's, she's perfect. Like she is so good for this role and she continues to be very good. And it's cause no one knew who the fuck she was. You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I totally agree. Yeah, but no, I mean, there's a lot of other underlying issues with Beauty and the Beast that, you know, we do talk about in our episode of Beauty and the Beast, if you want to check it out, y'all. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, it's... Our very so, first episode, the very first episode we ever recorded and published was our Beauty and the Beast episode. So if you want to hear where well, we've no, been <laughs> as to how we've, like, how we've come versus where we've been. <laughs> well, technically, our first episode we published was Man of Steel. No, I said this was the first episode that we recorded and published because technically we recorded one oh, about true. that terrible movie but didn't publish it. Yeah. Um, my second one is when someone has definitely never actually seen or been around snow and writes characters wearing inappropriate 
clothing for freezing weather. Yeah, we talked about this in the Snow White version. That's just lazy. I like yeah. why would why would a filmmaker do that? Just go someplace where there's snow and spend a week. And then yeah. you can write about snow as much as you want because you know what it's like. Yeah, yeah. Like um there is a scene in Spartacus, the show. I think it's like the first episode and they're like running through like a snowy landscape and they're wearing like loincloths and like that's it. And like I'm like, okay, well, they would die of exposure. Like they would die. They're they're not gonna live with snow. Are you kidding me? I mean, it doesn't matter how tough you are, like your body will start naturally shutting down. (laughs) Your toes would fall off. Like I assume they're not wearing snow boots either. Oh no. So regardless of what the rest of their body is, if your feet are in the snow bare or in sandals, you're it they're just gonna start getting frostbite and they're gonna you're gonna get you're gonna get hypothermia and Yeah. Oh yeah, you're gonna die. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're it's really annoying. I agree. That's really frustrating. Just Well, and it's just like, it's like to the person who's writing this or who's designing these costumes for freezing weather, it's like, do you know what snow is? Because it's cold. It's real cold. Like it's, it's real cold. Like I'm not kidding about this. And for some reason people are like, oh no, I mean, they'll be totally fine in loincloths and sandals and we'll totally survive through this. And I'm just like... Even if you build a fire, it's not going to do anything, you know? Like, yeah. I learned something really cool on The Office Ladies since you're bringing up snow. And I would recommend people looking this up. Um, So on The Office, the show takes place in Pennsylvania. But it's filmed in Los Angeles, obviously. Or it was filmed in Los Angeles. And they talked about the company they used to make snow on their sets. And it's called Snow Business. And you should, people, if you're interested in it all, you should look it up and look up the pictures and stuff and just see what they can do. Because it's just pretty awesome. The uh, miracle of snow that you can put on a movie set. And so obviously it's probably not real snow that we're seeing. And so the actors are like, I'm not cold at all. You know, unless it's like Leo DiCaprio in uh, that one movie where he fights the bear. But um, the Revenant. Yeah, because I think they went to like the tip of Argentina and actually filmed it in a very Arctic environment. But um, yeah, it's really cool. Snow Business is the company that The Office used. And <laughs> I just think like the movie magic of it is neat. But I agree with you. Directors, just if you're going to write something in the snow, just go someplace cold, take a vacation there, and then you can more accurately costume design and have your actors act in it. So... Yep. Yeah. No, it drives me nuts. It's like, you know, we live in Michigan, so, and we get a lot of snow here. And like one year we got like 92 inches. Do you remember that year? It was like 2017 or something. That was terrible. I love it. I love snow. Really? I hate snow. You know, I love snow. I've talked about it multiple times. (laughs) I hate snow. Anyway, what's your next one? My next one is um inappropriate music for a scene like i saw this movie which was actually like a like a like a, re- like a remake of like it was like Haley dove and like 
It was like Hallmark Christmas movies, but it was like a remake of like Beauty and the Beast again. That seems to be a, a topic of, um, uh, or, you know, a pretty consistent topic today. But they had music in every single scene and it was loud. Like it was loud so much to the point where you almost couldn't hear the people talking. And it was like music in scenes that don't need music in them. You know what I mean? Like, there's no reason for there to be music in them. And it was so, and, and I'm, and I know that there's like other, <laughs> there's like other examples out there. But then the thing that made me think of this was when you sent me that video of the puppy and it was playing that Katy Perry song that was like, in another life, you know, like, and I was like, this, why would you put this over a puppy video? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And it's a TikTok, so it's a little different, but I've also seen it in, um, you know, in films and it also made me think of, do you remember, <laughs> do you remember when that song Boys Chase Girls by Ingrid Michaelson came out? And yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you remember this. And there was like this DJ who was playing the song on the radio and he's like, He's like, no one knows what this song is about. Who knows what the song's about? But it's really fun. And I was like, well, did you listen to the fucking lyrics? <laughs> because the lyrics pretty state pretty obviously what the song is about. And he's just like, it's just so much fun. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Do you remember that? I remember you telling me that story. And I remember thinking like of all the songs in all the world, that one's probably one of the most clear what it's about <laughs> so yeah <laughs> like it's not like there's no like that song is not full of metaphors like it's no. pretty like straightforward it's like girls chase boys chase girls like it's all about like all the arguments that we have as as couples are stupid let's just like have a good time like that's literally what the song's about and the guy's just like this is so much fun I I don't I don't listen to lyrics I don't know what lyrics are but like yeah, this who knows what this song's about. I was just like, oh my god, and it's just. And I've heard that I've had that, or I've seen that in movies, where they'll have a song, and I'm like, did these people even listen to the lyrics? The song is about breaking up, and it's in a romantic scene. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I, uh, I think a lot of times, filmmakers try to shoehorn popular current popular songs into movies and when I notice that that really bothers me because I think me oh you're just using this song because it's the hot song right now so I, I think that they can be used inappropriately for that reason and it, it is annoying when it happens it's really annoying it's really annoying it's like it it might like melodically if that makes sense fit with the scene but lyrically nope doesn't not at all and it drives me nuts it drives me up the wall yeah yeah it's like it's like using the song gravity by sarah barry ellis for like a like a song that you're gonna dance to at your wedding that song is about feeling like you're possessed by someone like it's not a romantic song it's like a pretty dark song actually <laughs> and it's just like did you listen to the lyrics you know like it's just it's like one of those things where uh, it drives me up the wall it, it drives me crazy because like, you know, Google is a thing. And if you just Google Gravity by Sarah Barry Ellis lyrics, 
it's going to fucking pop right up. <laughs> it's not like it's some, like you have to go to the like highest mountain in Nepal and like speak to like the only monk who's blind in one eye. Like, like there's no excuse. There's no excuse. This is a big crap peeve of mine. I, can't really I think, enjoy this. I think that the film that you were talking about that had like really loud music and it was obnoxious and you didn't really understand the, the stylistic choice. I think that there are filmmakers who masterfully marry music and visual like Danny Boyle and Cameron Crowe are two examples that come into my head who can pretty much do whatever they want with music because they're so good at tying the two together. And like Danny Boyle, he's, amazing like he can just he can create beautiful moments that incorporate music and visual and and I think he just does such a great job of it and I think that other filmmakers who aren't as good see that and think I can do that and they just can't they can't because it's like it's his his gift I think is that and if you want to try to copy that and i think wes anderson he does that really well he does music and and visual very masterfully as well and yeah i think um other filmmakers try to copy that and recreate that feeling that they get when they watch movies that are done so well in that realm and they just they can't do it and the the trick is it's it's just not you know you have to find your strength you can't ride the coattails of other filmmakers strengths so i agree with you i think i think music is such an important part of a movie oh yeah if you're not using your own vision then yeah it does fall flat if you're if you're just using a song because you're like this will be artistic it's not gonna you know yeah and i think i think you're right i think that it's it's really annoying when it happens because it's you know we know we've seen movies everybody sees movies we know when something is working and you know yeah so you can call it out pretty easily yeah it's uh i agree with you and i'm i have seen quite a few danny boyle movies but i i wouldn't say that i particularly have noticed the music um in them but i totally agree with you about cameron crow he like he's very good at including a song where you're like you know, like you feel it, you feel it as you're watching it and you feel it in your emotions and it's strong and it's powerful. But if someone is inserting music into a scene that doesn't fit, it's like, you're just missing the mark. You're not understanding why this isn't working. And, and it's frustrating and it's annoying. And it, it, it's kind of like, and it takes you out of the film, I think, because you're like, what, why this song of all mm-hmm. the music? Of all, like, it's like, of it's all like that. The millions of songs in the world, this song, <laughs> it's like that scene in the OC where it's like, mm, what you say, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, they tried so hard to make such an epic piece of like media with like visual and music, and it's just so corny. And then, Obviously, SNL perfectly spoofed it, but I think, you know, it's that sort of attitude where they're like, okay, this is a powerful song because that song is really powerful. This is a powerful song and this is a powerful, quote unquote, part of the show. We're going to mix these two together. It's going to be great. And then it's just comical because it's right. not like, you right. know. Like it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, I've seen the um, SNL like 
satir- satirized like scene more than I've seen the OC one. And I think I actually finally watched the OC scene like within the last two years. But oh, I really, yeah, like I finally had seen it, and I was like, <laughs> I just remember being like, what? like what even? This is bad. <laughs> I watched I watched the OC for too long. I did too. Um, season one was really clever, I thought. And then season two, less so. And then as it went on, I started thinking, okay, they got, they got to, they got to let this go. Yeah. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah. But anyway. It so was, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, no, I agree. Um, it started out like, well, I mean, I've, so, you know, I've been watching CSI like pretty frequently and they had, um, I think her name is Julie on, on the OC. And they had her on on CSI, and every time she'd come on the screen, I'd be like, "Oh my god, I love her!" <laughs> so, but that no, that show that show definitely is started getting more and more ridiculous, and it wasn't like it was kind of like a little bit funny in the beginning, and then it got like too serious, and it just became a joke. Yeah, it like made fun of itself in the beginning. Like the first season was like kind of cheeky. It was like a teenage, so teenage slash adult campy soap opera that was clever, that had some heart, but also knew what it was. And then yeah. they were like, oh, people are taking us seriously. So now we have to really be serious. And then it, and then when Ryan became a cage fighter, that's when I thought, I can't <laughs> do this anymore. <laughs> no. Because after the murder, after Marissa killed, uh, what's his, I think his name was Trey. I'm not sure. I can't remember. Marissa killed him in that scene we just talked about. And then the next season, Ryan was like so distraught that he became a cage fighter. I don't know. Thank you for joining the OC podcast. <laughs> what's your next one? We're still relevant. No. <laughs> um, let's see. My next one is um, when people write siblings who have never had siblings. Hey, sis. Hey, bro. I've never, ever in my entire life, in the 30, wait, wait, hold on, 29 years I've known my sister because she's four years younger than me. <laughs> I have never, ever said, hey, sis, to her. And it drives me fucking bonkers because, like, I think it would make sense if maybe there's, like, a huge age disparity, you know? Like, someone's, like, 10 years older than their sibling. And they don't like they're maybe like they don't really know their sibling very well. But I don't like siblings don't talk like that to each other. That's not a thing. Yeah, that was actually the one moment um, in Pan's Labyrinth where I I don't know if I would have noticed it before you brought it up. But yeah, when she's like, Pedro, my brother, Pedro, I was like, uh oh. Yeah, <laughs> I actually like that. <laughs> have some thoughts about that, too, because I thought that, too. And I thought that the way that they acted um, towards each other, they could have feasibly been lovers over yeah, brother I'm, and sister. I'm not sure why they made them brother and sister, except maybe they just didn't want to like add the romance element. I don't know. But I thought that one little tiny part, I was like, oh, Lauren, Lauren has ruined this moment for me. This, this uh, reunion for me is ruined because now I know and I agree that people My brother, that way. My brother. I have to tell you a funny story about this. So Mike and I were watching the movie Signs recently. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about, we were just like throughout the movie, we we were sort of like pausing it and having little discussions. And we talked about how 
it's like the relationship between uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Mel, Mel Gibson is like so good. It's so realistically like a sibling relationship. And Mike said something to the effect of like, yeah, and M. Night Shyamalan never makes them call each other brother because he knows that that's not how siblings talk because you had talked about it on our Knives Out episode. And so, and then we watched some deleted scenes on the DVD and there's a deleted scene where Joaquin Phoenix calls him brother. <laughs> started laughing and he said well he was wise enough to keep it out at least but anyway yeah nobody talks like that in real life no. like hey well, brother the thing, is, the thing is that you know that that's your sibling so you don't need to announce your relationship with them you know like it's it's one thing to use like mom and dad because those are like terms of like um not titles but like you know what i mean you know but it's just that's just not yeah, that's not how siblings talk to each other. They don't they're not like hey bro, hey sis. No. It fucking drives me nuts. <laughs> it drives me off the wall. Yeah, it's just like they can find I think um you could find a better way of exposition to portray that these two are siblings. Like yeah. I think in Pan's Labyrinth, the director wanted us to know that they weren't lovers, but they could have easily had like they could have had her say something in a different scene like my brother's in the woods or some other character be like your brother's very brave or your brother is this or you know he could be wearing a, th- a little name tag that says mercedes brother you know any other thing than having <laughs> yeah, her say anything. my brother my or he brother. could say how's mom and dad <laughs> yeah yeah le- yeah no, it- i'm just kidding but yeah anyway <laughs> it's terrible um okay so i have two more And I'm going to save the best for last. Um, When you see a heterosexual male and a heterosexual female, they inevitably will hook up. And I hate that trope so much because people like, you know what? I've met a lot of heterosexual men in my life. I don't hook up with all of them. (laughs) Wait, I need you to clarify because are you talking about like, this is not a love story or this is like... No, like, um, so there, the book Angels and Demons by Dan Brown, um, is a, um, it was the, like, not, not the prequel, but the Da Vinci Code was the sequel to that movie or to that book. And in the book, Robert Langdon, who's the lead character, who's played by Tom Hanks, ends up with the female, like the attractive young female in the book. And they're working together. But it felt very forced. Like, they shouldn't have gotten together just because it, it was, it, there was no reason for them to. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I understand now. So, like, a movie that doesn't need a romantic storyline sort of stacks on a romantic storyline. Exactly. To maybe try to attract more viewers or something. Exactly. It's like, it's like, um, it's always like kind of wedged in there when it's not necessary for it to be wedged in there. And so when they made the movie, I was like, Oh God, I hope that I was like, I don't like that storyline. It felt really forced. It it didn't feel like it was necessary and they didn't include it in the movie. And I was glad that they didn't because I didn't like it in the book. If it's not a love story to begin with, and you're starting out with the end goal being a love story, there's no reason for these characters to get together other than for there just to be romance in the story. You know what I mean? And yep. it's like, I, it I doesn't need to be watched in there. 
It doesn't need to be forced. We don't need to see that. We don't need to like, and, and it's always like characters who either they don't even like really have chemistry or there's really no reason for them to get together because they don't spend enough time together, but they end up together anyway. And it's just like, it's like, why? That that's not how, like, that's not how life works. You know, like you don't just see someone and go, I'm going to hook up with them. Like, <laughs> because they're a straight male and I'm a straight female. So things <laughs> are going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it just, it's, it doesn't, it's just weird. And it's, it's a weird and it's forced and I hate it. Yeah. I think, I think I agree with you. Um, Cause I don't mind, I don't mind romantic storylines if they fit and they make sense, but I don't like it when it's just like, well, here's some romance, you know, to appeal to the women. That's what I always feel like when there's like forced romance. I always feel yeah. like they're like, women won't like this movie unless we have some romance in it. And it, when in reality, like, if the movie is strong enough and it doesn't need it, then it doesn't need it. Okay. And my last one and the best one, and we've talked about this many times, is drum roll, please. Not, not going to do drum oh. roll. Pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. Terrible. <laughs> okay. First you ask and then you rate it. <laughs> I do. Yes. You wonder why I was silent at first. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, these stupid quarantine shows. <laughs> oh, you opened a can of worms. I cannot stand capitalizing on something we're all still going through. I know. Like, okay, so I saw like the advertisement for Love in the Time of Corona. I hate that title. Like that I know, title me too. makes me want to destroy something. I know, me too. Um, and the thing is, like, so when I saw that, I was like, oh, it's like a modern retelling of Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Well, it's not. It's fucking not. I've never read that book, but I like I know of it. So and I've like read the synopsis and everything. And like the first thing is like this couple's like, we should have a baby. And I'm like, you both are out of work. Do you think you could even afford a baby right now? <laughs> like, like, well, and they're like, and it's always like seen as like, oh my God, we're going to make a baby. This is so cute and romantic. And I'm just like, ugh. And then like, there's like the two teenagers who are like, I never told you this, but I'm in love with you. And I'm like, so you two haven't murdered each other after being stuck inside for like three months together. I doubt it. <laughs> I also find, I find that I find the thing that probably drove me nuts okay so number one the thing that annoys me is just like we're all still in it so I really don't care to see shows about being in something that I'm already in yeah um like if I was being attacked by a shark I don't want someone to come set up a tv and be like which have you ever seen the movie Jaws because I think (laughs) you'd really like it so then number two what really bothers me is like oh I'm so happy for you that your quarantine situation is so lovely when a lot of people a don't know how they're gonna put food on the table tomorrow because they actually don't have a job b live alone so they're like really struggling with isolation and just being away from everybody c have family members that are high risk that could die from the situation that's happening and the list goes on and on it's so insensitive it really bothers me no it's totally insensitive it's like and it's like it's just, it's done as like, it's so idealistic. It's so romantic. It's so cute. It's so whatever. 
And I'm like, I don't want to fucking watch what I'm like, like what you said, I'm being attacked by a shark and you're setting up a fucking jaw, like you're setting up the Jaws movie for me to watch. Like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> like, this is rude. And it's, and it's just, it, it's like, there's, there's a bunch of other ones. There's like one with like David Tennant and like, um, and Michael Sheen and they're like, their entire thing is like based through like Zoom or something. So it's like, it, it totally like it's it's like all based on like video chats and i'm like yeah. why the fuck would i want to watch it that sounds super fucking boring and stupid yeah like, there's a show called like connecting too that's the same thing it's like all video chats and again i'm living through this already like we like to all our listeners out there sam and i have been doing this over zoom because of you know people in our lives that are are high risk so we don't want to you know potentially like you know it's it's a pandemic it's a fucking pandemic so you know we don't need to explain why but we've been doing this through zoom because it's just it's the way that things are working right now and so it's like i'm literally living this right now you and i are both literally living this i don't want to watch a show about people who, like i want to watch a show about people who are together like in person who I don't have some sort of like stupid like romance, like quarantine romance. Oh my God. It just makes me want to fucking throw up. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. I hate it as well. It really, it, it grinds my gears in a way that uh, not many things do. And yeah, it's dumb. It's really dumb. And, and it's, it's honestly like for people who have lost people to coronavirus, it's insulting. It's insulting. And it's like, it's inappropriate a little bit. You know, it's like, just either don't put out new stuff, just wait until things are safe or I don't know, do anything else. <laughs> you know? Yeah. If you have the capacity to make something, then make something worthwhile. Yeah. You know, but yeah. Anyway, that's a good one. That's a really good one. Thanks. And that's it. And that's all my pet peeves. So we ready to talk about the movie. Yes. What did you think of it? I love this movie. I've seen it before. I love it. Yeah. It's, um, I was looking it up online and it got like 96% or like 95% on like Rotten Tomatoes. And I was like, well earned. (laughs) That is a well earned 95%. Big time. It's such a good film. And I, um, I mean, we've, we've kind of talked about like, you know, Guillermo del Toro's other stuff, like, um, the orphanage is really good. And, I think some of his more like English speaking films aren't as good. The Spanish speaking ones I've seen, I've loved all of them. Like The Orphanage, The Devil's Backbone, which is actually a companion piece to Pan's Labyrinth. And I didn't know that until recently. Um, And I liked Hellboy, but I wouldn't say Hellboy is anything extraordinary. I think it's fun. I think it's a good watch, but I wouldn't like, it's not amazing, you know. Um, But... And I don't know how you felt about like Pacific Rim. Did I thought like Pacific it? Rim was pretty awesome. Um, I liked it too. Yeah. No, Pacific Rim was was really cool. And I went into it not really knowing what it was about. And I was blown away. I loved it. But um, I was in college when Pan's Labyrinth came out. And I was in a... I was working at the movie theater. So I knew the movie Pan's Labyrinth had come out. But I didn't really know much about it. And I was in my... Co- I had a film class like a my one and only like film making class actually mm-hmm. the only because it was the only class I took where we like made stuff and um which I guess 
is encompassed in the way the words filmmaking. Okay, I'm going to start over again. <laughs> no, that was good. I liked it. So it was my one and only filmmaking class. And I went to class one evening. Wait, uh, and- so Sam, is that, um, was that class about making films? <laughs> I went to class one evening and everyone in the class was talking about this movie, Pan's Labyrinth, that had just come out. The professor was like, has anyone seen Pan's Labyrinth yet? Go see Pan's Labyrinth. And then I went to class the next time and, every- and more people in the class were like, we saw Pan's Labyrinth. We saw Pan's Labyrinth and everybody at work was talking about it. So finally one night I was like, all right, I got to see this movie. So I went by myself and I saw it in the theater and that's how I saw it for the first time. And just incredible. Just like what a beautiful, beautiful, sad, melancholy movie. It's, it's so good. I know. Now I realize that you're going to cut out that other stuff and that my little joke isn't going to be funny. Well, I have to keep it in now because you made that joke. (laughs) so how old are you when you saw it for the first time um i think i saw it right around right after it came out so like 1920 so i had graduated high school in 2005 um yeah so i saw i saw it at home i didn't see it in theaters and i like was watching it and i was my mom was like had i think she had recommended it to me or something and she was in the same room with me and and like we'll get to this part but at the end I just like burst into tears and she's like it's okay honey and she like came over and she gave me like a hug and I cried this time too like full on like I was like I knew it was coming and I had like a pillow like hug to my chest because I was like I'm gonna fucking cry like I know I'm gonna cry at this ending and I did I definitely did yeah I teared up as well it's very it's very emotional it's very yeah. very emotional it's um, very good. Yeah, so I also have very fond memories of this movie because it was recently a Founders movie and Mike and I went and it was one of like the first few movies we went to together. So that was pretty fun too, like seeing the movie with him and then we would talk about the movie afterwards. So it's cool and he obviously likes the movie because he told me that Pan's Labyrinth joke. Yeah. <laughs> way before that ever happened. Like, And so, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's a pretty cool movie. It's a very cool movie. It's it's very well done. So I do have to say, as far as uh, music goes, like with what we were talking about before, music that's appropriate to a movie or inappropriate, uh, they they use this song. It's called Mercedes Lullaby a lot in that in that film, and um, that is a very like prevalent like theme throughout the the movie and that's a very good use of music because it's subtle and it's kind of like a little bittersweet and it's it's just it's perfect it's perfect yeah well yeah i mean in terms of score it is it's a has a beautiful score and i like that melody a lot and i like that they incorporate it as her mel like as her lullaby Mm -hmm. in sort of the beginning of the movie but you've already heard the theme already but then her lullaby is the theme, so I like that thread. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I love it. So, the all the fairy tales in this movie are like so fucking dark. Like, you know, like they're like talking about like Princess Moana who lives in the underworld, and then she like goes to the human world, and like her her memory is erased, and um, 
she ends up like just dying and I was like okay <laughs> like that's super happy I guess fairy tales are pretty dark though overall like I forget that a lot of the German fairy tales have been you know changed and altered and stuff like that to fit like Disney's kind of more like happier vibe but a lot of and I mean Spanish fairy tales are obviously not the same as German fairy tales but um I think that um kind of like as time has gone on that fairy tales are less of a like they're less of like a cautionary tale and they're more like oh this is a romantic and I don't mean like romantic like like sexually romantic but you know what I mean like more like a, a like romantic, romanticized like, yeah yeah more like a romanticized idealized kind of version of of what um like a you know a fairy tale so because I think that as far as cautionary tales go, there's so many other good examples out there that you don't really need fairy tales anymore because it's like everything's so connected now. You know what I mean? I think I think fairy tales, and I, I read this, so it's not like I didn't put it together on my own, but um, Guillermo del Toro sort of classified this as like a fairy tale slash parable. And I think mm. that makes more sense because like a parable is sort of something that is teaching you something in a way. It's like putting broccoli in cheese soup, you know? And so I, I, I think that's sort of like a good way to look at it. Like, yeah, like we can learn anything we need to learn is at our fingertips, but what are we absorbing? You know, like what gets down in there? And I think making a fairy tale slash parable is how you could get a message across in a more creative way. Yeah. And and I think that the story he told um, was so dark and so sad that putting the fairy tale spin on it helped it, like, it was easier to swallow, like. Yeah, like soften the blow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what I guess you're assuming is that Ophelia is Princess Moana. Mm -hmm. And um, and she's traveling with her mom, Carmen, to meet the captain, Captain Vidal, who is fucking psychopath um <laughs> like um so my question for you is do you think that all the things that ophelia are, are seeing are real or do you think it's a 10 year old's imagination i waffle back and forth on this um because part of me really wants some of it to be true because i i really like the ending when she you know sees her parents again and I, I like the idea of like, just, it's kind of fun to sort of like dream that it's true for her because her life is so, so sad and scary. But I also talked to Mike about this recently and he was talking about like, do you think it's all like her imagination because she's living in such horrible conditions, like the terror that's around her, she retreats. And I, I think that that's more likely. I agree with his assumption and i think it's it's probably she's retreating into the confines of her imagination because of the just the dark like it's world war ii so even if only spain spain isn't the only country that's fighting there's just war everywhere you know so yeah leak and i think she's and like the war isn't even the issue really in her life in her life the war is like she's about to lose her mom you know yeah, yeah she's almost she's actually kind of already lost her mom because her mom is married again and, and you know so 
in a, in some ways just life is so different for her now and so she's retreating into these these books and this imagination and i think that that's what it is and what tipped me over the edge of thinking that is that at the end which we'll get there too but i just want to mention it since it's pertinent that she is in the throne room with her parents and they're like princess welcome back and the fawn is there and he says like good job you passed welcome back take your seat and then it shows her ophelia in the real world dying but she smiles right before she dies like even though she's dying in her imagination things worked out and so that's why i think it's all in her head and that's what made me sort of like tear up um, yeah. So I think it's her imagination. What do you think? So I actually was curious as to what Guillermo del Toro thought or was what he was saying about it. And he said that it is actually all happening, that it oh, is a cool. real story. Yeah. Because there's like little bits and pieces like, and again, we'll get there, but like at the end, there's like the chalk that's on Vidal's desk and um, like there's, how else would that have gotten there if it wasn't real, you know? Or um, the headboard that Carmen has, there's like, it almost looks like a fawn. Like, I don't know if you notice that, but the design of it. And then um, on the staircase, like the, the end of the staircase, the handle of the, um, the um, railing, <laughs> I was like, what is that word? The end of the railing, there's like a fawn, like a little, like a little piece of wood that's carved into the shape of a fawn. So he says that there's bits and pieces throughout the entire film that show that what is like that princess Moana was actually like a real person that she's Ophelia. Oh, cause I was thinking all those things to me would prove that it's just like things she stole from to create her imaginations, you know, right. I really also like the scene where Mercedes goes into her bedroom and Ophelia isn't there. And you see the outline of the chalk on the wall, like a child's playing, you know? Yeah. And like, yeah. sure. She could find chalk and pretend it's a door anywhere and set it down on the dad's de or the captain's desk. So that's interesting that those, those things are him saying it's all real. Whereas in, as I'm watching it, I would think, Oh, it's like the usual suspect. She's like pulling things from real life to create her fantasy. So that's interesting. I like that. Yeah. Um, I personally think, I think that if I was, had not read that, I would think that it was not real, that it was like mm -hmm. the, the, I, cause you know, I mean, she's 10 years old. Ophelia is 10 years old. And when I was 10 and even now I have a, a big imagination, you know, and, um, if, if your, if your world, your reality is so grim and so dark that like, you know, she's not going to get like therapy or something like that. So her escape is through this, this magical world where she's a princess. And if she, you know, she goes back, she's going to be with her real father who's dead, you know, and versus being with this guy who is a fucking sadistic asshole, you know, I mean, he's a, like, he's a psychopath. He is a fucking psychopath. And she is in this, you know, this place where she doesn't want to be there. She's with her mom and her mom is very sick and can barely move and is like super pregnant and about to give birth. And it's for, for someone who is so young it's understandable that that would be a very like likely escape for her 
Um, so I, I like darker stuff like that. So in my mind, I would, I would personally rather have it not be real and have it be in her imagination. Um, but that's what I think. If I was, yeah. if I didn't know that I would think that it was not, it was not real, that it was her imagination. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I, I like, I like it both ways, honestly. Yeah. I like thinking that it's real and she was a princess and the captain couldn't actually mess with her because she's a princess. But I also like thinking that it's just this imaginative retreat that a girl who's very like suffering very badly escapes into. So yeah. 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 So yeah, Ophelia and her mom are going to this mill where the, the captain lives. Yeah. And I assume her mom, her mom has, I don't know if she has like preeclampsia or something, but she's very sick with yeah. her pregnancy. Like her pregnancy is not going well. And I feel like my heart sort of breaks for the mom in this movie. And I, I have questions for you about the mom that I guess we'll get to, but when they get out of the car at the mill, the captain seems kind of warm towards her. He, she's like, you know, I can walk just fine, but he has a wheelchair brought up. Right. Please do it for me. And, and I thought, does he love her? Does he not love her? And then, you know, obviously later through the movie, you sort of learn, but I, so that moment, but I also like, like Ophelia is so defiant. Like she's so quietly defiant in the car her mom says, when we meet the captain, I want you to call him father. It's just a word. Just call him father. It's just a word. It doesn't mean anything. But Ophelia doesn't do it. And I really no. like that subtle. I wouldn't science. either. Yeah. I'd be like, no, he's not my dad. I'm not going to call him that. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Carmen is the mom's name. Um, I, so as far as what you said about how, like, he, does he really care about Carmen? I don't think it has anything to do with her. I think it all has to do with the fact that she is carrying his child. Well, that's what I was going to get to, but I guess we can talk about it now. But so they're at, they, like, if we jump ahead, they have that dinner party. Yeah. With his friends. And this was where my main question about their relationship came up because the women said clearly to her, how did you and the captain meet? And Carmen says, my husband was a tailor and he passed away, so I had to go work in his shop, and the captain, he fi- he created the ca- captain's uniforms, so the captain and I met again, and then the, the women were like, ooh, you met again, and then she holds the captain's hand, and he pulls his hand away, so very obviously, he doesn't love her, really, and I'm wondering, like, this is, I'm, I'm, I don't know how deep we're supposed to read into the relationship, because I didn't understand the ladies at the table being like oh yes yes you met again like wink wink I didn't understand what that what their tone meant and I wondered if perhaps their relationship was one of he forced himself on her in some way like I don't know if I don't I don't want to say it was like out of the blue rape I'm not saying that like rape isn't rape but I'm just wondering if like he saw a woman who was in need so he kind of forced himself on her and she got pregnant and then he was like well we'll get married because he wanted an heir so badly or what did he trick her and make her think that he was interested and he loved her I don't like I feel like I don't understand the relationship all the way and I don't understand those women's reaction to it because then he said 
forgive my wife. She thinks people wants to hear these silly stories. And I thought they asked, they asked how they met. So what's silly about it? Is it silly because you don't, because he obviously doesn't care for her because he pulled his hand away when she right. tried to hold it. And when he humiliated her. Yeah. yeah. And, and later in the movie, she's talking to Ophelia and she's like, listen, life doesn't always work out good for people. It's sometimes it's very sad. So I'm just wondering what your take is on their relationship. Um, I, I, okay. So her husband passes away and she's obviously in a very vulnerable position. You know, she no longer has an, an income and so she has to, she has to work. Um, and I, I don't really know honestly i think it that i think that your your theory on him maybe forcing himself on her i wouldn't i wouldn't say necessarily that it was um like sexual assault but i could see it being like oh you're so lonely you're so beautiful and you're so lonely like let me take care of you i want to take care of you and then you know it's maybe she's she's like okay well <laughs> like not like i have any other uh, you know like i don't have any other opportunities or i just have this this daughter you know and i have to take care of her and the daughter can't like it's not like the daughter can make funny you know she's 10 so um it could have been the type of situation where carmen was in a very vulnerable position and he's a manipulator i mean and he's like he's so like He's so like slick, like he's so like a, like a snake in the sheets. You know what I mean? Like you don't necessarily notice that he's there, but then when you do, you notice big time that he's there. You know, like he's very like, even when he is, and this is kind of skipping ahead, but even when he's like torturing people, like the way he's going about it is like, we're going to be friends, but you're like, uh, no, 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 you know, like, but it, it's so yeah, he's a master manipulator. Exactly. And yeah. I would not be surprised if the situation was, um, I mean, I, I don't think it's love. I don't think that they love each other. I think that it's a purely a, a marriage of convenience because I think if she, if they had sex and she hadn't got pregnant, I don't think that he would have married her. I think That's what I was sort of did, thinking. Yeah, it was because she was pregnant with this kid. Yeah, and, and I was thinking that maybe she was hoping that he would be kind to her and warm to her and love her, but he didn't care one bit about her. But since he was getting an heir, suddenly he's like, oh, I get an heir, so right. might as well marry her. So I agree. And I think her story is so, just so sad. So sad, sad, really. Very sad. Yeah. I mean, you know, and he even says to the doctor later, like, um, if she has the baby and you can save the baby over her, then do it. She yeah. was like, he was pretty much like, if she dies, she dies. But if that yeah. kid lives, like you make sure that kid lives. And that's just, that's so dark. It's so dark, you know? Like, what yeah. the fuck? It's, 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 so anyway, so they arrive at the mill mm -hmm. and um, there's this little like um, 
I don't know, like praying mantis or something. Like a stick insect. Yeah. Yeah. That Someone is, can, like when I was reading online, they're like, it's a cricket. And I was like, that is not a cricket. No, it's not a cricket. <laughs> it's either like a grasshopper or a praying mantis or a, I don't know, something. Some sort of stick insect either And it, it's flying around and Ophelia chases it and she comes to this like broken down like little maze. And mm-hmm. Mer- that's when, this is when we meet like Mercedes comes up and she's like, oh, it's a labyrinth, you know? And Mercedes is the housekeeper. And so she's sort of like a surrogate mom for Ophelia. And I really like their relationship. I like that they're, Me too. they hit it off and they're very warm toward each other. And she's very protective over Ophelia. Yeah. She, she really clearly loves her. You know, like I, I loved Mercedes so much, like so much. She's such a great character. She's so she's caring and she's like willing to put herself literally in the line of danger to you know fight for what she believes in and she's just she's such a great character she's so great you know i fucking love yeah. mercedes <laughs> like she's when i strong. watched it again she's i was like this courageous. character is so great <laughs> yeah i like her a lot too and so so they're just sort of settling in to life at the they're calling they keep calling it the mill they're just settling into life at the mill and the doctor tells the captain that his wife shouldn't have traveled because she was, you know, she was already so pregnant. She shouldn't have traveled. And the captain. She's like eight months or pregnant or something. She's like super pregnant. Yeah. Right. And the captain is like trying to fix this watch and make it run again or he's winding it or something. And then you find out later that it's a watch that his father had and he broke it at the time of his death so his son would always know how a, a brave person dies yeah and ophelia's upstairs and she her and her mom fell asleep oh and there's an interesting thing that you mentioned um Chekhov's gun which is like the sleeping potion the doctor gives her like three drops of oh yeah potion. he's like only only two drops or three drops no more and then they very clearly lay the vial set the vial down so you know that that sleeping potion is going to come in sometime later in the movie. Yeah. And because Ophelia, you see Ophelia notice it, you know, and her and her mom are laying in bed and her mom's like, tell you, and they keep calling the baby her brother, like, mm-hmm. like it's definitely a son. And the doctor is like, how he says to the, the captain, how are you so sure it's a son? And I, and I was thinking, yeah, how are you so sure it's a son? And then, right the captain's just like don't fuck with me so (laughs) the captain is so cocky that he thinks he can like create willingly will the right chromosome into existence you know i know and so anyway so she carmen says to ophelia tell your brother a story one of your fairy tales and i think it's really cute and she like lays on the stomach and she's like brother i think that's cute because she's saying brother because he doesn't have a name yet right well and that's that is different that is Mm -hmm. that's different that's a baby that's not born yet i'm talking about like grown-ass adults who are like hey bro hey sis and then i'm like okay this no so she says she's like brother and then the camera sort of like goes down and you see like a baby in the womb Mm -hmm. and i would be tempted to think that that's not good special effects like that i would be tempted to be bothered by that but then it turns into a little fairy tale scene with the flower so i think it's very creative i like that i i liked it and and then she gets woken up in the middle of the night by the grasshopper 
thing, the praying mantis thing again. And, and she's like, are you a fairy? And then it turns itself into the fairy and it leads her out into the labyrinth where she meets the fawn. And that's mm-hmm. when like the real meat of the story starts. So Guillermo del Toro, um, he said that he really didn't like that English audience or English, like the translation of the title. Cause the, the title is like the, um, the Spanish title is like del labertino del fauno or something like that which is like the fawn's labyrinth and pan is is not a fawn first of all he's a god (laughs) and he's a satyr and satyrs are well known for having like strong sexual appetites so the fact that they use the name pan and they used it because i guess american audiences or english-speaking audiences are more familiar with pan as a character um he was like the fact that they use the name pan is really is really upsetting because if they are using it in terms of his interaction with a child that's not okay because pan again is like like a very sexual like he's not and he's not a fawn he's a satyr so they i don't understand why then like as far as the english title went they they didn't use like the like fawn's labyrinth you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I agree. I was wondering about that. And Mike actually mused about that when we were talking about it too. Like, why Pan? Because Pan is never said in the movie. No. And you you saying that Guillermo del Toro was upset about it makes me think he doesn't have any creative control over what they title his movie in English. Maybe. I don't know. Um, I know that he, I do know that he was very upset with how they did the subtitles for The Devil's Backbone. So he and like a team sat down for like a month and did, um, cause he speaks fluent English too. Um, they sat down and they did all of the subtitles for Pan's Labyrinth. Um, because he was, he was just like, no, this has to be a certain way. And I don't, I don't like it that way. So I, I think that's kind of weird too, but I don't know. It, it, maybe he doesn't have control over how they call, how they call the movie in English audiences. Yeah, you know? I thought Pan's Labyrinth is a weird title as well when you could just easily do the direct translation because that's what it fawn is. Labyrinth. It's a fawn. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I agree. It's like a totally different, like a totally different thing. Yeah. So, and again, like if you're going to do the character like Pan, then do the character of Pan, but don't do like, yeah, it's whatever. It's, it's super weird. It's super. It's very strange. Very strange. Yeah. Um, So anyway, so she meets the fawn and he gives her like a book and he tells her that she's the reincarnation of Princess Moana and um, and has to do these three tasks in order to get back to her like underworld, her homeworld. And I think so we didn't mention earlier just back to kind of to go back to Mercedes because she's a really vital part of the story. Um, She is helping her brother and like a bunch of other rebels uh who are living in the mountains fight against the captain who is okay so he is he believes strongly in something called phalangism phalangism and it's the and i'm looking at wikipedia it's the political ideology of two political parties in spain that were known as the phalange namely the first Falange Española de las Juntas de... Okay, so <laughs> I don't know what that means. One second. Okay, when I hear Falange, like Falange, like I always think of like 
Regina There's Falange. There's something wrong with the left phalange, <laughs> you know, in Friends. Yeah, Regina Falange. <laughs> Regina Falange. Okay, so it looks like it is a fascist movement based on its fascist leanings during the early years. Um, it was transformed into an authoritarian conservative movement in France, Francois, Spain. I probably totally mispronounced that, but um, basically a fascist movement. So that's what the captain's into is he's into this fascist movement. Yeah. So this and, is like the tail end of like the Spanish civil war. So yeah. like the people in the mountains are like the, the rebels. Yeah. And the and captain, the captain is says like, to like, these rebels have to understand that there are some, like there are people who are, he says something like better than them or something like, like we are better than these, these rebels, like as human beings, we are more like worthy of whatever, you know, I mean, very, very, like, very, um, I mean, like pretty <laughs> classist, I guess is a word yeah. I would use. Uh, but anyway, so, so I just wanted to mention that because I felt like it was important and then I didn't want to like leave that out. Um, so anyway, I think so also wanna... I, I, something I really like about this movie when we, when we're introduced to the fawn is it's played by a real person. It's played by Doug Jones. I love him. And it's like five hours of makeup to get into the fawn. He played the fawn and he played the pale man as well. And there's something so awesome about using costume and makeup and one of the base one of the very basic things is just human movement because it's like the uncanny valley like if it's a computer animated thing the look of the like the visual of what it actually looks like could be cool but it's never gonna move like a human being and that's gonna detract something from your movie because it's just you can't mimic human movement and i just think it's so great that they put somebody in a costume because his movements his hands the way he walks the way he tilts his head everything is a performance and it's not created on a computer it's created by a human in a human you know a human's reactions and it's so good it's so well done well and doug jones is like doug jones is famous for like he, I think he says like he's the most well-known person who whose face you'll never see or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he was. I mean, he's been in a whole bunch of stuff. Like, yep. uh, he was in The Shape of Water. He's in a lot of Guillermo del Toro stuff. I think. Yeah. Um, and he's a very talented actor. And I like everything. Every time, like I find out that he's in something, I'm like, oh my god, I love that guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um. And I, and we've talked about so many times before about how using, um, using CGI can really take away from something. And it reminds me, and I think a lot about this, like whenever we talk about like CGI in, in movies and everything like that, and especially like with, as you said, like human movement, I think about Rogue One. Did you see Rogue One? Yes. And they, how, how they made like the CGI, like Princess Leia. Mm Mm-hmm. I was like, this makes me so fucking uncomfortable. And I think they did that with another dude whose character, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, Tarkin. I think they did it with Tarkin. Yeah. Because I'm not a big fan of Star Wars. I like it. 
I don't really necessarily care about it. It's not my favorite thing. I don't like actively seek it out, but I don't mind watching it. Um, but I straight up hated Rogue One. Like I didn't understand why people liked that movie. Anyway, that's not. Well, that's so we that. meet the fawn and yeah. he gives her the tasks and then the next day they're having like some dinner and Carmen was like, Hey, Ophelia, I got you this really pretty dress and shoes. And so she made it for her. I know. But the thing is something that I I thought in this movie is like, and then they give her like this bath and she's looking in the book, like, cause the font, the font says, look at this book when you're alone and the pages are all blank. But when she's alone, it like fills in and it talks about this tree that she has to find with this toad. And she has to put these like, stones in the toad's mouth so the tree Mm -hmm. can bloom again and so she's in the bathroom about to take her bath and she's looking at the book and um and then they give her a bath and she looks really pretty and I thought why would you give a little girl a bath and dress her so nicely hours and hours before the party (laughs) yeah I don't I oh I have to say something about that actually so um with the toad so um so she crawls through like as you said that they give her like the um the bath like hours and hours before the party which you're totally right 10 years old like she's gonna be like i'm bored i don't want to sit around in my dress for five hours like waiting for shit to happen i want to go out and play in this gorgeous like land landscape you know um there is something else that that i forgot to mention that guillermo del toro had said about um as far as like the whole like princess moana being real is that the tree blooming in the end is also a sign that it was real oh yeah 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 so that's a good yeah that's a good moment as well yeah yeah so she comes Uh, down and there's all these like lady like the kitchen ladies are like oh you look like a princess you look so cute and mercedes i thought that part was so cute they're all like fawning over her and they're like you're so sweet you look like a little princess and i love it so cute and mercedes is like do you want some milk and ophelia's like yeah and i thought awesome she's gonna give her some milk oh right from the cow so she's like (laughs) milking the cow (laughs) to give her milk that happened (laughs) like when she went and she went to go milk the cow i was like oh right milk does come from cows (laughs) like like, i'm assuming that the answer is no because i think it's probably kind of rare for city girls like us but have you ever had milk right from a cow i have not because in my head, I envision it like not being pleasant because it's probably, war- I mean, it's definitely warm. Oh, yeah, for sure. And no, I-, I mean, it's not like pasteurized or skimmed like <laughs> we're used to. So I wonder what it tastes like. I've always wondered that too. But I have to say that I don't think even if I was offered milk straight from the cow, I'm I'm like, I'm pretty open about trying like new foods and stuff like that. Like it doesn't bother me. And I, I will try pretty much anything. But that always grossed me out a little bit. So I don't know if I would, even if I was offered, like, I don't know if I'd be like, yeah, I'll totally try milk straight from the cow. I think I'd be like, um, no, I'm okay. I think I would try it. I think I would try it. You think you would? Yeah. I mean, I I don't think I'd, I probably wouldn't want a whole glass of it, but I'd take like a couple sips, see what it tastes like, see what it was like. Yeah. Maybe. So so she has her milk or whatever, but then she takes her book and she walks off into the forest because they dress this poor girl up hours before this important dinner. And at the same time, the captain and his like little army 
have gone out into the the mountains as well and they find a camp that the rebels had like just vacated and they Mm -hmm. find a little vial of medicine which we know belongs to the doctor that's helping carmen and also helping mercedes with the rebels like the vial belongs to the doctor but they don't know that yet yes and then um they find like a lottery ticket and the captain is like, they're here. They're watching us right now. And, you know, so there's like a tense moment there. And then we cut to the tree. So Ophelia's at the tree. Mm-hmm. And she's stepping in mud. So her like new shoes are so muddy. And I get a little like stressed out when stuff like this happens. Because I'm like, you're going to get in trouble. Or, Me you know, too. Like, <laughs> but she was Me smart too. enough. Like she took the dress off. So she was just wearing like her slip. And she hung the dress on like a branch of the tree. And then she crawls into this muddy, muddy tree. Oh, my God. And I, I, I think I'd be like, um, I don't really want to be a princess that bad. <laughs> I really liked, I liked the set design of the tree. I liked how tight it was and there was roots all over. And how muddy, I actually liked how muddy it, it was. I thought that was pretty neat touch. And, and all those like liked, really enormous roly poly bugs. Yeah, and I I enjoyed how she um, she's very cool under pressure because the bug was on her arm and she just gasped and wiped it away. But if that had been me, probably now as a kid, but then also maybe now a little bit, I probably would have screamed and like <laughs> I would not did. have. But she's just so like she's very calm and i, well, I like that about her like character. she's like just annoyed bad she's like Ugh, no get off yeah. me i would have been like oh, my God! <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah no she she is very cool and calm under pressure mm-hmm. i think i don't know if it's less like <clears throat> if it's so much like who she is as a character or if it's just like that age that doesn't it doesn't bother her but i don't know you know? I think it's her character personally. Yeah, I've been I've been ten years old before, and I wasn't like that with bugs when I was ten. You know, I don't think I was either. I think she's um she's a very old soul, as actually the story explains. She's an old soul, like in the fairy tale. But I think just like in life, there are you know she's just an old soul, and yeah. um, so she's crawling through the mud, and she comes up to the frog, and this giant frog and there's this like she's talking to the frog and she's like does don't you feel bad being down here sucking the life out of the tree and this bug crawls up her cheek and she never like flicks it away she just, she doesn't notice she's, yeah like too cool for school you know i know <laughs> and the 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 frog like his tongue lashes out and he gets the bug from her face Ugh. And I think that's really creative i really like that as a means for her to get him to eat cuz i was thinking like it's like it's almost like a video game. Like, how do I get this frog to eat these stones? Right. And like, I like shoving it in its mouth. Which yeah. Like, like, is not like you're trying to give work. your dog, like you put peanut butter on toast so you can give your dog a pill. You know? yeah, yeah. And so I like that she thinks like, oh, and so she picks up a roll of roly poly and it rolls up and she's like, hey, and then it obviously eats the stones out of her hands because it thinks it's eating the bugs. And but it before that, it like belches in her face so hard that it blows her hair back, which is really gross. <laughs> like, oh, I it's like all this like spit flying at her. Oh. And it's like, oh, it's so nasty. I know. Well, and you hate belching, so 
That was probably extra gross for you. Yeah. Ugh. And once again, she didn't she didn't seem bothered by it. No, no, I like I really like her stoicness. I like her her she has like a backbone or something. I, I it's not like I don't think she's stoic. I don't think she's checked out. I think she's just she's very steadfast and she's yeah. thoughtful. And I I like that about her. I like that she's not prone to extreme emotions. And and well, I, think I think that's interesting. Maybe the horrors of war have numbed her. Yeah, that's to things that like be. that. Yeah. Like comparison the humanity, the like actual real raw humanity of of like the terrors that are going on in the world compared to a giant toad are really nothing you know like at the end of the day a giant toad compared to your psychotic new stepfather is like a walk in the fucking park you know yeah actually you remind me of something that we didn't talk about that i want i want to talk about and it's the scene where the stepfather which i think happens just before this just kills that man with a bottle oh my god so the son the father and son there's a his guard calls him out of his house and he comes out and there's an old man and his son, his adult son. And the son is like, they're being questioned by the, the guard and the guards like they're rebels. And the father's like, what were you doing in the woods? And the son, son, ca- the captain, sorry, I, ke- I called him the father. He's not the father. The captain, yeah, the captain yeah. says, what were you doing in the woods? And the son is like, if my father says he was hunting rabbits, he was hunting rabbits. And the father keeps saying I was hunting rabbits. And the captain takes this bottle and he, I, I actually like, I've never been able to fully watch that scene. I've always had to turn away because it's so, so just, violent, it's so violent. And it's, it's just, it's so crazy. And I forgot that that was a scene. Like yeah. I literally forgot that that was seen. Anyway, go on. He repeatedly smashes this guy's face with a bottle and to the point of the guy, like pretty much dying. He's in like, the throes of death and the dad the father character is like you killed him and then he shoots him yeah so like well he shoots his, he shoots the dad he, he shoots, shoots the, the father and then like and i don't know if you noticed but i noticed that like the dude who was holding him like the 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 guard that was holding him he knew what was hap- was gonna come because he immediately moved to the side so that he yeah. didn't get shot and so the father got shot and i was just like whoa and and I, I got very like, not very emotional, but I got emotional at that scene because I forgot that it happened. And it was so, it was so shocking and so surprising. And the, the, the captain never changes his expression the entire time. It's like, it's like he killed a spider. Like that's how he was. It wasn't like, it was like this, whatever I'm doing right now. And this person that I'm killing, it doesn't matter. He doesn't matter because to me, he's a rebel and rebel are scum. And it's like, it was so aggressive and so quick. And he didn't even blink. Like it was like, it was terrifying. And it was like, mm-hmm. and I, like, I got emotional over it and I, I could feel like, I, like, like I felt like I was going to start crying. Cause I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. I was like covering my mouth. Like I was just so surprised. And I, I remembered what a, you know, what a giant creep the captain was, but that was just like, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, ama- he's just amazing. so evil. Terrible way. Yeah. Yeah. And and then he finds rabbits in their yeah. bag. So they were telling the truth 
presumably that they weren't rebels. They were just hunting rabbits. And like you said, his expression never changes. He just says to his, he says to one of the guards, make sure you question them fully, be fully before you bother me. So he didn't feel bad for killing innocent people. He felt angry that his time was taken up and that. Yeah. Well, and it's like evil. It wasn't even like, oh, I should have checked. It was like, no, this is your fault because you didn't do this. And now you've wasted my time. And it's like, okay, so two men are dead on the ground, but so sorry, we wasted your time. You know, like that, like they, they probably have family and now this family will probably never even know what happened to the, the father and the son, you know, like they might never get the answers that they need as to what happened and why they disappeared. And I mean, just the whole implication of that is so startling and so shocking and scary and, and terrifying that this guy has absolutely no problem taking a human life and then just walking away like it was nothing. Yeah. And, um, in a, in about that scene, Mike told me that there on the DVD commentary, um, they say that that is pretty much the first violence you see in the movie, and it's yeah. And they wanted it to be. I think Guillermo del Toro might have even said this. I can't remember if, if it was the director or what, but that he said he wanted this to be the most shocking thing, and then everything after that you sort of accept because you've already seen this horrible, yeah. shocking thing and so your your comment about the frog is reminded me that yeah like to a little kid if your father has died and all this thing all this other stuff is happening what's a big frog you know yeah so i mean really like mm -hmm. yeah what what what's an what's a big animal compared to the horrors of war yeah you know and i'm certain i'm sure she's seen shit you know she's you know she i mean her her father was killed she may have even seen him die you don't know that you never find that out but um it obviously his death had obviously profoundly affected her you know well yeah i mean i think the death of a parent (laughs) yeah i think yeah so she crawls out of the tree and it's raining and her dress has fallen (laughs) off the tree and it's all muddy oh my god i know it's so funny that you said like scenes like that give you anxiety because the entire time I was like no 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so there the dinner party is happening with like hoity-toity other captains or something friends of the captain and they have that conversation that we talked about yeah between the between Carmen and the the table and in the background of this like Mercedes like and Carmen had a conversation where she's like, where did Ophelia run off to, you know? And so Mercedes goes to the woods to like, do like a lantern signal mm-hmm. and she sees Ophelia coming and Ophelia's like, just trash. Like she's so muddy <laughs> and they come in and she says to Carmen, we found your daughter. And then what follows is a scene that I really like. It's very sweet. So Ophelia's in the bathtub and Carmen's like, you've really disappointed me. I'm really disappointed and you've disappointed the captain too. And then she looks and she says him more than me. And then Ophelia smiles. And I love that moment because Ophelia's like, okay, mom's not that mad at me. (laughs) Who cares about the captain? I don't care if I disappoint him, you know, but the mom is also like, listen, captain, you disappointed him, but I, you're still, I love you. You know, everything. I just love that. Mother it's daughter such a little moment. rebellion for like a 10 year old kid because she's like oh really i made the captain mad mm, that sucks <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah exactly 
Oh, it's so good. Um, I I love Ophelia. I think Ophelia is a great character. Um, mm-hmm. So she's actually in that show that I talked about. The actress is in that show, um, The Chronicles of Shannara. Shannara Chronicles, oh. whatever. I can't fucking remember. Yeah, she plays a character in that. She, which like, when I was watching that show, I was like, I'm like, that's a little girl from Pan's Labyrinth because her acting wasn't that great in the, in the show. And I was very surprised because I thought that Ophelia was a very, like, her performance was very well done in Pan's Labyrinth. So I was kind of like, well, I mean, is it a good show? Is it um, well written? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, it's fun. It's a fun adventure show. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's great. No, I, I, yeah, think, I think some I, I of watched... it is like the director's vision. A yeah. good director can pull a good performance out of somebody. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Guillermo del Toro is a very good director. Mm-hmm. So then um, <clears throat> the next day, they there's, there's a moment here. So around this time, the captain is like filling up his storehouse with food because he's like changing the ration card system. So each family gets one ration card and then they're going to be holding the food at the mill and the families have to come and line up. And so they're filling the the mill this little storage room with all kinds of like food and tobacco and stuff and he says to mercedes mercedes give me the key so she gives him the key off of her key ring and he said this is the only copy right and she said yep that's the only copy to the storeroom and he's like okay i'm going to be holding it from now on and so the next day all these people are there and they're lined up to get food but while that's happening um ophelia is upstairs and she's and her mom like starts I don't know, like hemorrhaging or having like a miscarriage of some kind. Not like a miscarriage because the baby survives, but she's hemorrhaging. Yeah. Well, and Ophelia like sees it in her book. Like, yeah. Like blood like fills the pages or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and she's like, oh no, something bad's going to happen. And then that's when the mom is like walking around and like, yeah, just blood coming out of like, I mean, ugh, pregnancy is so scary. <laughs> Like it really freaks me out. Well, pregnancy um, in like rural 1940s Spain seems <laughs> pretty insane. Particularly terrifying. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, and she's Carmen's so sick anyway that it's just like it's like almost like not unexpected that this happens. You know, you're kind of like, okay, that that kind of seemed like you know that might that might occur, and um, then later that night the fawn visits ophelia and gives her a mandrake root um and the mandrake is like a human looking kind of like a human looking kind of root there's there's a whole thing in harry potter about mandrake roots where um they have to like replot repot these mandrake roots and if you hear the sound of a mandrake screaming you'll faint and you'll you'll be like out for several hours. So um, <clears throat> I think Mandrake may have kind of like a deeper meaning within as far as um, like fantasy goes. Not like necessarily just fantasy, but also I think like I think it has like I think it has a like pun intended but like a deeper rooted meaning to it than you know than just just that it seems like there's there's more to I don't know if it's like a kind of like an old-timey belief in mandrake roots that maybe it like it helps 
I don't know. You know what it I mean? It says here, it says here, um, a mandrake is a Mediterranean plant of the nightshade family. Okay. Um, it has a forked, fleshy root that supposedly resembles the human form and was formerly widely used in medicine and magic, allegedly shrieking when pulled from the ground. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, she had to put it in, like, a bowl of, of milk, and each day she had to, like, put two drops of blood in the bowl. Well, it makes me wonder. So... I don't know if you wondered this, but it makes me wonder if the fawn meant she needs to change the milk every day, because that's kind of what I assumed, because it seems like the milk, well, it would spoil, you know, like very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I didn't really think about that, but pr- probably, yeah. I always, the, I think the first time I saw that, I was like, why wouldn't she change the milk every day? But I feel like that would be a difficult task to do, because- where do you throw it out? You know what I mean? It's like yeah. without someone noticing. Yeah, I'm not know. sure. I mean, I guess the story is about putting a root with blood and milk under a bed. So <laughs> where, I don't know. Like, I guess you- <laughs> the minutia of how it's done. <laughs> it's very important. I must know if it has to be fresh milk or not every day. I would have asked. I would have clarified. I would have said, listen, Fawn. <laughs> Fano, what up, yeah. buddy? So the Fawn <laughs> gives her another task, and he, after he gives her the route, he says, you know, take this chalk, draw a door, mm-hmm. and go in, and don't, you're going to see a big feast, don't eat anything, and I'll sit here, take my three little fairies to help you. Mm-hmm. And so I really like this scene. I think a lot of people really like this scene, but I love like drawing the the square. I think that's so cool. And then opening the door. I just, I love that imagination. I love that. And she walks down into, like she drops into it, but she puts like a chair. Everything she does is so beautifully methodical. It is. I think that's why her character is so like mesmerizing because she puts a chair down there. And she steps down on the chair and then she steps in this long hall and she walks on down the hall and she comes into the banquet room and there's this full feast, all kinds of delicious looking foods and this weird, like all white creature. It's a man. And it's, oh, the fawn also says what, what's down there is not human and don't eat anything. It'd be terrible if you did, you know? Yeah. And he also says that you need to make sure, um, that he gives her like an hourglass and he says yeah. you have to be back before the last sand falls. And like my first thought was that first of all, that that was the tiniest door ever. <laughs> like, I was like, why wouldn't she make a bigger door? But um, yeah, so, so she, right. So she's into the, like, it's really like kind of a beautiful space, you know, um, with everything. And then this, like, I, personally could not possibly understand how she wouldn't have seen that creature and then been like okay so gonna do this real quick and get the fuck out of here because that thing hasn't moved i don't know when it's gonna move it's creeping me out let's go um but instead she's just kind of like huh interesting and then she's noticing that all of these like walls have these like frescoes of this creature eating children and like killing children like brutally killing children and the fairies guide her to these three keyholes where she, that's where she uses the key that she got from the toad and she finds a dagger 
and um and then so <laughs> there's also like an interesting like shot of a pile of kids shoes yeah yeah which i thought was kind of a neat touch like all of his victims Very creepy you know yeah i don't understand the shoes <laughs> like i don't understand after she saw those shoes why she wouldn't be like all right get a haul ass gotta get out of here you know i think they're like in my head when i'm watching that scene i think there's a sort of magic at the banquet yeah because like she's very smart and right. the fairies try to keep her from eating but she can't stop herself she still eats so and i love her facial expression in this scene when she's swatting the fairies away like they're trying to be like don't eat don't eat and she like gets so annoyed and she's swatting them away and i think and her like, performance is yeah i love it she's i think that there's like an enchantment basically and yeah it's like it's almost like she stopped and she looked at it and she was done for like if she hadn't paid close attention to the food she probably could have made it out but right yeah well i wonder too good (laughs) oh my god i know so i actually so it's funny so i knew that scene that she eats grapes and those scene that scene because every time i watch that scene i'm like man i really i just really want those grapes i know bad so i have grapes that i just bought and i went to go get them but they were like the seeded kind and i hate those kind because the texture is really weird like it really it really like bugs me. I don't like it, you know? And so I'm like, I'm like starting to eat these grapes and I'm like, this is great. I'm also eating grapes. This is wonderful. But then I started noticing something was weird about them that they were like, they didn't have that, that they had seeds in them. And I was like, fine. I guess I just won't have grapes. <laughs> and I was so disappointed. No, it I know. So like, disappointing. Grapes with seeds in them are like so big looking and so juicy that you're like, oh, these would be so delicious. But then it takes away from them when you have to like worry about the seed yeah yeah. Yeah. like and or you just eat them but i don't like the texture i don't like the texture of it It really it really bums me out you know i can't i don't like it i won't and so i now have an entire bag of grapes in my fridge that i'm never going to touch because there's no way that i'm going to eat seeded grapes well you could cut them in half and like get the seeds out (laughs) and then you enjoy them a little bit so she (laughs) <laughs> so she eats she eats one grape yeah and then you see like the ah, oh, there's such a cool scene where like the pale man the pale man's hands start moving with these long yeah. weird nails yeah and they're the like not even nails they're like the end of his he like doesn't even have nails it's like the end of his sharp sharp little fingers yeah um, yeah and his eyes are laying on a plate like his face has two holes that you think are eye holes and his eyes are laying on a plate in front of him well i never thought that they were eye holes i always thought they were just nose holes well when you first when you first see him and you don't like you don't know where his eyes go i think that's true maybe you didn't i did i I mean i I never i know the movie and i know where his eyes go but they still kind of like trick the viewer i think personally Uh, yeah no i i never i never thought that i never i just always thought that he never had eyes I didn't know what the character looked like the first time I saw the movie as well. So maybe now that people know that he's like hands are eyes, maybe that doesn't trick people anymore. Yeah, maybe. It did trick me. Hmm. Um, But anyway, so he's putting the eyes in his hands. And when I was watching this, I thought she should have put that plate somewhere else if she'd have known because then he wouldn't have been able to find his eyes, you know? Right. Right. But anyway. well, and like the amount of time that he takes, because he kind of takes a sweet time to like put his eyes like in his hands. I was like, 
in the time that he put his eyes in his hands, she could have just ran down the hallway and got out of there. But she was you know? like, yeah, she was mesmerized by the food and she was still like swatting the fairies away. Right. And it wasn't yeah. until he like stood up and she heard the creaking that she realized he was awake. Right. And then he caught two of the fairies and like he ate them. Oh my God. But, yeah. Uh, you could see like the string of like the organs, like of the fairies, like coming. Oh, so gross yeah it's just, it's just traumatizing too like yeah. even as an adult that was traumatizing i was like no not the fairies you know so then he's got blood all oh over his God. mouth but then he starts chasing her and she's running down the hall and the door is closing because the hourglass is running out and i thought why didn't she bring the hourglass with her because a clock is no good if you can't see it you know what right I mean? yeah no exactly so the, the hourglass is running out and the door is slowly like cementing over and i really like the pale man he like puts his hand out to see uh -huh. and i thought that was a really cool motion of him like putting his hand out in front of him and so the door closes and she can't get in and so she's like fumbling with the chalk to make like i don't know why she made a higher door like, i don't need a door in the ceiling and i thought girl you better have good arms because i don't think i could pull myself up like I that i'll know no and i know well i mean she's a kid so it's a little different when you're a kid you i think your upper arm strength is probably a little bit better yeah your body um, is uh more like your upper arms and your body are more like together <laughs> yeah like in your oh yeah well like because usually kids are a lot more active than adults too mm -hmm. so um but yeah i don't know why she didn't do that either why she just didn't do it like to the side or something like that but instead she's like standing on like the back of this chair like if she like she could fall forward or backward at any moment like just totally able to somehow like balance on this chair and I thought that was weird, too, that she did that. Like, I, it was kind of like, why the ceiling of all the places? Like, she could have done it on the floor. and I She could have done it right better. next to the door that she made. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't. Yeah. But I, don't I like, I like the, like, the mystical. So something cool that happened. So she, she created the first door on the bottom of her wall, right where the wall meets the floor. And then when she was in the hall and she created a new door on the ceiling of the hall, she come up through the floor of her room. And I thought that yeah. was really neat. And then she got out just fast enough. Her and the final remaining fairy gets out and closes the door. And then you hear him like banging underneath, which I think is pretty cool. Like knocking on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like that scene. It's very, yeah, too. it's very unnerving. Mm -hmm. um and you know he's like this tall creature that's got all this like hanging flesh like hanging off of him you know like very like wrinkled and um again a like a doug jones excellent performance you know he's very good i like him a lot i'm a big fan well then mercedes and the doctor go to the woods to oh, see yeah, the rebels right. to visit the rebels and that's the scene where we find out that her brother is is like pedro she's like she walks up to him and she's like pedro my brother my brother <laughs> as we discussed <laughs> yeah yeah um so <clears throat> and they have a friend who is like was injured in the leg and that's when they have to cut off the leg yeah that scene was pretty gross as well um yeah like i couldn't remember if they showed like all of it or not um 
but yeah that was uh that was pretty nasty that was like they show the first cut basically which is all you really i mean it's pretty yeah it's pretty gruesome yeah Yeah. and they introduce a character that stutters in this scene who comes in later and yeah the rebels are just have this like little camp in a cave and they're visiting and you know when the doctor and mercedes go back she mercedes says to her brother "I'm, i'm such a coward i live with the captain and i feed him and i wash his sheets and and he's like no you're not you're not a coward you're brave and i i like that moment because i think like mercedes feels like she's not doing enough but she's actually doing a lot like she's putting her life in danger in very gruesome danger like she's not just putting her life in danger of getting killed she's putting her life in danger of being tortured before she's killed you know oh yeah no in this scene i had a problem with because she gives her brother a key to the storeroom Right. And she's like, you can't just go open the door up because he'll be expecting that. You have to do something, you know, like, but here's the key. So the rebels create these diversions and they like blow up train tracks all over around the mill. Right. And they steal stuff from the storehouse. But why did they use the key? Because so the captain sees that the lock isn't broken, that the lock has been opened. And I don't, I don't understand that scene. Can you explain why, why you thought if they were going to create all these diversions, why wouldn't they just break the key? And also, why would they use a key when it would be obvious that somebody in the mill provided the rebels a key? Like, why did they yeah, do that? I, I agree with that, too. Um, it's It seems like if they, you know, like, especially since he's like, is this the only copy? And she's like, yes, that's the only copy of this key. When it's like clearly you know i mean the captain is not a stupid man like you know you're not gonna be able to get by him and pull the wool over his eyes he's an observant individual um and she she knows that too so like to me that's like she's familiar with who the captain is as a person and she knows what he's capable of and i guess that's a good question because why if she like if she knows what he he can do and what he's capable of why even put your friends and your family into that dangerous type of situation when things could really like you know shit could really hit the fan and then um like this guy is gonna be like okay so in this small little community that i've built by my or that i built someone has betrayed me and someone is going to pay for this and to me the captain clearly does not have a problem injuring people to get the answers that he wants to get so if he doesn't trust his people well then what is stopping him from hurting them what is stopping him from yeah from from um like putting everyone on trial like no one is going to be safe and it's it's so it's not even just the fact that she's putting herself in danger or the rebels in danger it's she's putting pretty much like everyone who works there with him in danger you know and so i i agree with you i think that i think it would have been um i i don't know it's i i agree that it's weird it's weird and it's 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 a good way to give yourself away 
yeah like i i guess i guess i would be satisfied if they showed them using the key but then doing something to the lock so it didn't look like they used a key once because if they were going through so much trouble to create all these diversions right it's nonsensical of me of all the things in this movie that i can't get on board with it's just the fact that why why would there even be a key involved like they have right the capacity they they can blow up train tracks and derail a locomotive but they can't take care of a little lock you know well and like how did she even get a copy of the key like i, I don't i'm assuming there's not like a blacksmith around there you know like it was like an iron key like it was you know it wasn't like a wax key like it was a made I mean, of metal i assume that she knew more about the happenings of the house than the captain did yeah so maybe. it's not totally far-fetched that there would be multiple keys for me but it is far-fetched that she would be like don't use it because he'll expect that but then he used it so yeah I, I just didn't that tiny moment i didn't i didn't understand um and I think that there's a couple times in this movie, two times actually, specifically a couple too, that I thought there was some, I don't want to speak badly about the movie because I think the movie is so creative and so good, but there's these two moments that really kind of bugged me and the first one was the key. So then the second moment we'll get to, we haven't gotten to yet, So we'll, but I'll bring it up when we get closer. So anyway, so the key thing really was perplexing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I didn't really, well, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it's, um, it's a good way to give yourself away. If you're, if you're working for someone who is such a sadist and has no problem killing people, which, you know, we see earlier in the film where they are, um, like kind of like they have like a little battle and they're, and everyone, like the officers are going through the woods and they're like shooting people in the head to make sure that they're dead. It's just like, that's just, it's, it's bad enough that you're killing people, but then you're going through and you're like, it's just an added layer of like fucked up in this and sadism to who he already is as a person to not even give these people like a chance to survive, which is makes sense because they're your enemy, but also it, it's just, it's just a, such a dark aspect of it that they're just like, Oh, I saw this guy twitch, bam, you know, right in the head. Um, yeah. 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 Pretty I dark. don't, I don't understand why she would, why they would want to put <sighs> it's Mercedes being, you know, a spy in his household is so vital to what they're doing so very it's very weird yeah yeah so i didn't like that he was able to put it together so easily i wish that he would have had to put a little bit more legwork into knowing that she was the spy yeah um but all all things considered like it's hardly a blip on like anything that would make me rate this movie any lower it's just something that i i don't particularly i don't understand why 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 it happened that way Mm-hmm. But so then, um, so then Ophelia, oh, Ophelia had to sleep in her own room because the mom was so sick. Carmen was so right. sick. So Ophelia's in her room and the fawn comes back and the fawn gets so angry at her because, uh, so her mom is doing better because of the mandrake. Right. The fawn is like, your mom's doing better. And she's like, yeah, but something happened. And then she shows him that 
two of his fairies are dead and he's I know. so mad and he's like you're never the door is closed you ruined it you messed it up it's over you'll never be a princess you're gonna live like a human and you'll die like a human so sad yeah it's so sad and he like retreats back into darkness and she's alone and the next day she is um she's in her mom she's in her mom's room and she's under the bed and the captain comes in and he sees her drags her out and sees the man drake and the mom wakes up carmen wakes up and carmen is like no leave i'll talk to her i'll talk to her so the captain leaves and and that's when carmen gives her the speech about like you know sometimes life is just really sad it's not happy like your like your stories sometimes and she throws the mandrake into the fire yeah oh and that's like and even though the mandrake is a root like it's still like a kind of disturbing scene because it's screaming in pain yeah because it, it's that, like personified as like a baby yeah and then it like it like and what i thought was really sad is that it's like screaming in pain and then it curls over onto its side and like curls up into a little like a fetal position as it's dying and i was just like i know that's just a like a like a root but like it it like hurts you like you know like it, it hurts to watch this part and carmen is like all of a sudden like is like oh no this baby's coming right now and they have to like get they get ophelia out of the the room and and, you know, the doctor comes in and everything and, um, and she ends up dying, giving birth to the son. Yeah. There's a scene earlier that I, I liked. Oh, wait, wait, we forgot. Cause we forgot to mention, sorry to, to interrupt you, but, um, the doctor was killed before that scene. They had to get like a different doctor. Remember? Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that real quick. So they kidnap or not kidnap. Well, yeah, they, ca- they, they catch one of the rebels and, and keep him captive the stutterer yeah the stutterer yeah and and like just a like turn of extraordinary cruelty the captain's like if you can count to three i will set I, without stuttering i'll let you go and like you just know that this guy can't do it and he doesn't and he stutters on three he gets through one and two and then he stutters on three and um and that's when, and, and and you just see like hours later and this guy's got like a broken arm and, and he's just like suffering and, and they bring in the doctor and the doctor euthanizes the guy. And that's when the captain sees the vial of the antibiotics and he knows that he's working with the rebels. Yeah, I I thought that part was interesting because the captain is so collected. He like holds up his different torture devices and he's like, I'm not going to believe what you're saying at first. And he holds up like a hammer and he's like, with this, you'll probably tell me a little bit of information, but I'm not sure if you're a liar. And then he holds up another thing like pliers or something. And he's like, with this, we'll be closer friends. You're going to probably tell me more things and I'll be able to trust. And then he holds up like a, I don't know. It's like a, like a, like a spike or something. And yeah, I don't know. He's like, and with this, will be very close and i'll know that everything you're telling me is true and it's just very chilling he's so calm he's yeah so calm and, and like it's ugh. it's ugh, it's it's terrifying but yeah so the the doctor comes with his case and this is the second moment that i didn't 
particularly care for. So the doctor is talking to the kid who was tortured and the captain pulls out a vial and he knows that the vial, like that the doctor was helping because they found the same vial at the rebel camp. And I felt that that was slightly easy as well, except maybe in those days, like doctor doctors made their own tinctures or something. So they had their own vials because I was like, yeah, vial doesn't really prove anything. So that, like I said about the other, about the key, like it's not enough for me to say this movie is bad or anything. I would never, the only reason I'm bringing it up is because we're talking so in depth about it, but I, it's right. something that I don't fully like because it seems too easy almost for how creative the rest of the movie is. Right. So I didn't mind that part. I, I kind of like that, that he like, and then he rushes into, the, the captain rushes into his like own, um, you know, his own room and he, he finds a vial that he was keeping and he like is comparing the two. Um, that didn't bother me so much, but I think it's mostly because the vial was kind of just such a unique shape, you yeah. know, that um, I, I don't like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about 1944's Spain to like, you know, like doctors in Spain to be like, like without a doubt be like, oh no, they definitely wouldn't have had the same shape vial or anything like that. Um, so I see what you mean, but to me, it didn't, it didn't bother me enough. You right. know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So the, the kid is like, you know, he's like, kill me, please kill me. So yeah, the doctor fulfills his wishes and, and euthanizes him and um and then the do- captain the captain gets real pissed the ca- yeah the captain i thought this little act of defiance was pretty neat i liked that the doctor was like no like just doing things and not asking why that's not that's what people like you do not people yes like me. oh my god that I was really such a powerful that. line such a good line and then he just grabbed so his- true yeah yeah and he just grabbed his case and walked out and he knew, you know, he had to know that he was going to die, but oh, he yeah. died with like dignity. And then the captain in like supreme cowardice shoots him in the back as he walked away. Yeah. And then he gets called because the wife is, is a Carmen is in labor and they have to call like the, the army paramedic or whatever. Yeah. I wonder like, I wonder if the army paramedic didn't have as like, just out of curiosity, like I want, it seemed to me. And I'm kind of like, I'm kind of just assuming this, I guess, that to me, like the army paramedic maybe was like a step down from the doctor, you know, like as far as experience goes, or maybe like, yeah, it probably not a lot of babies being born on the battlefield. <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, that too. Like, like the army doctor is, is like not like not a midwife like you know what I mean like whereas the the other doctor may uh, like probably had lots of experience or somewhat experience delivering babies and had more of the midwife um you know experience and I don't know what the the male version of it is but I think it's kind of like the same idea but um yeah like it, it seemed to me like almost like the army doctor would be more of like a butcher over a deliverer you know what I mean because the army doctor is like cutting off limbs to make sure you know like when they get gangrenous and it's it's stuff like well he's able to like bandage a wound and keep someone alive but right yeah I don't know but not deliver a baby right so I'm wondering if the doctor dying 
if he had not been killed, maybe Carmen would have survived. It's possible. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I know that like the Mandrake was sort of tied to her, so I don't know yeah. how much power that had. But yeah, I I that's a good question. I assume that she would have had a better experience if the doctor had been alive. Me too. Me too. Um so sad. Yeah, so, so the baby is born and yep. Ophelia is sitting out in the hall with the captain and the captain gets up to go in the room and the and the doctor, the paramedic, is like, uh, your wife is dead. And it's so cold and clinical. Like there's no emotion. And I don't even think the captain cares because he's you know, he has well, a son. I don't think he cared at all. I think he just, he just wanted, I mean, because, you know, when he says earlier in the film, like, if he cared, he would have been like, do whatever you can to save my wife. But instead, yeah. he was just like, if she dies, she dies. As long as the baby lives, who cares? You know, it's just like, okay. Yeah. There's a really <laughs> sweet moment that I wanted to bring up. And it's before this, Ophelia is talking to the brother when he's in the mother's stomach. Mm-hmm. And she's saying like, you know, eventually you're going to have to come out but when you do come out please don't hurt our mother she's very beautiful you'll see her and i thought that was that's so sweet like it it's such a sweet little scene and now she's truly well, alone like, in the world she's like she's like some days she's sad for days at a time but when she smiles you'll love her and i was like oh <laughs> it makes me so sad yeah it's it's so poetic and but now she's truly alone in the world like the captain doesn't care if she exists or not. The only no. person, well, Mercedes loves her and advocates for her, but the only person who really cared is gone. Her yeah. mom is gone. And and it's just a really heartbreaking, heartbreaking scene. And it's like, yeah, and she's like seemingly like kind of like the only person who's now mourning the loss of like her mother. Mm -hmm. And she's at the mercy of this man who who knows what he'll do to ophelia you know who knows he's a sadist he doesn't give a shit about her um, i think that if in like if everything kept the status status quo mercedes would have taken care of her for the rest of her life yeah but with the rebels and everything happening mercedes couldn't take care of her so i think if everything had stayed the status quo, the captain wouldn't even know she existed. I think he would, yeah. she would be invisible to him. Yeah. But, um, so, but the captain basically confronts Mercedes and says, someone opened my storehouse with a key. And I thought I had the only key. Isn't that strange? Basically like, I hate that. Her, like, I, I hate that. Did. Like, isn't this interesting? Mercedes, don't you find this interesting? Like this, like, again, like snake in the sheets like snake in the grass like just so uh like so creepy so uh he's he that actor i've only seen him in one other things and i think it's it was called like dirty pretty things um i want to say it was with audrey tattoo and i think chiatal ejafor was in it yeah and that, he was yeah. yeah did you see that one yes. he was super mm -hmm. creepy in that one too was he so, the boss um who would he like assaulted her basically yeah that's like honestly like really the only part about that movie i remember because i just remember being so like it was just so awful you know yeah um yeah so that that actor is very good at playing a lot of like really sadistic and creepy characters 
But um, yeah, so he he confronts Mercedes and then has her tied up so he can torture her for more information. Um, and well, Mercedes tries to leave with Ophelia. That's right. That's right. They try to escape, and obviously it's a trap. They get caught, and so the captain says to the the guard, "Like, watch Ophelia. If she tries to leave, kill her. Like, who cares?" Right. And then, yeah, he's tied up, Mercedes, mm-hmm. to torture but, her. But Mercedes, and from the beginning, you sh- you see her hiding a knife in her apron. Mm-hmm. Whenever she cuts food, she hides a knife, and that comes real in handy because she is able to escape her binds, and um stabs him like in the back and then in the front and then that cheek oh the cheek thing like oh yeah really (laughs) i love it she says you're not the first pig i gutted and i really like that line but yeah she she cuts his mouth some great lines in this movie and then there's a really cool scene like in a movie like this you kind of want like good things to happen and i think i think some movies may not have done this but i really like that they did so she runs into the forest and she's surrounded by the guard and you think she it's over it's she's gonna die but then she's rescued by her brother and the rebels and i love that being rescued in the nick of time and i i'm glad that they did that in this movie i'm glad that her and her brother both survive so even though we don't know her brother really i'm just really glad that there is some happiness like because I think it would be more easy in a movie like that to be like, we're going to kill off her brother or we're going to kill off, right. her, you know, but they're both alive. So there's like still hope at the end for them. Right. And so, yeah, they rescue her. So she survives. So funny story. I was reading as I was reading some information about this. Um, Guillermo del Toro doesn't like horses. And this was the movie that like solidified his hatred for horses. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. He was like, they're nasty buggers. I can't stand them. Like they're, you know, they're, they're jerks. They're, um, I, and I like used to ride horses when I was younger and I liked them when I was younger, but as an adult, I'm like, you know what? I think I'm okay. <laughs> like, I don't really particularly like being around horses. They're very big and they're a little scary to me, um, as an adult, because I have a healthy sense of more mortality. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> like as a kid, you don't, you don't really have that. You don't have like that healthy sense of mortality. You're kind of like, I'm going to live forever. Um, but it's, I thought that that was funny. And, um, I had read that before that scene where like all of the, like the, you know, the (laughs) the soldiers are being shot off the horses and then the horses are like running away. And, um, and that I agree that that I think that's a good scene too. That's a good scene because you're like, shit, here it goes. Like this is the end for her. But, um, you know, the rebels have her back. So, so she's okay. were the, the, the horses like act up or something during filming? Why? Um, why did this movie solidify that he doesn't like them? I guess. Yeah, I guess they acted up or something like that. Or they're hmm. just kind of, I don't know. He, he doesn't like, um, he doesn't like working with them. And uh, he really didn't like working with him after this. That's movie. interesting because I, I read the book Sea Biscuit, and like horses are so autonomous. It's it's I don't. It's weird that people would not like them because they're so like majestic and they have personality. They're kind of like after reading the book Sea Biscuit, it kind of reminds me of they're like the like more intelligent dogs or like kind of like dolphins almost, where you like they're thinking. You know, I right? Know. It's interesting. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I mean, 
I think having a fear of horses is pretty normal, I think. Um, but it's funny because like, I just mean like not liking horses. Like I don't, I mean, you should be in awe of like a big creature, but like not liking horses seems, I've never heard somebody say they didn't like horses before. So it's funny that he doesn't. (laughs) Um, it's funny because right after I finished the movie, you know, I like what I bought, I watched Bob's Burgers a lot. I watched this episode where Tina goes to horse camp and she gets given this horse called Plops and Plops is just the biggest asshole of a horse. Like <laughs> continues, like, like steps on her, like pees in her bag, like does all this shit to her <laughs> and she's trying to win this horse over and <laughs> just like it's so funny that this is like the episode that got turned on right after i watched this movie where guillermo del toro is like i freaking hate horses (laughs) yeah no he probably was pissed because his name was plops (laughs) well because he was pooping all the time (laughs) pooping anyway yeah so ophelia so then after that ophelia is in her room and the fawn comes back and Mm -hmm. he says we're gonna give you another shot we're going to give you another chance. So you have to do everything I say and don't question me. And I want you to go get your brother and I want you to take him to the labyrinth. And he, and she's like, my brother. And he said, and she says, the door's locked. And he's like, use this chalk, make a door, do everything I say. So then we cut to the scene where the captain is sewing up his cheek. And that's so nasty. I, I just strongly dislike, I don't, really watch that scene either i kind of look away i covered my eyes but i couldn't cover them for very long because it's in spanish so i had to read the subtitles so i was like i had like a pillow like over part of my head and the like one eye was like looking out because i was like i have to still read it i can't i I can't understand spanish yeah so um (laughs) so she comes i don't like that scene either um and that's that's when the um checkoff's gone Yes. Yeah. So she comes in and she, she's creeping around trying to get her brother. He sews up his cheek and he sees the chalk. Like you said, he sees her chalk laying on the table and he's getting kind of suspicious, but then somebody comes in and they're like, Oh, captain, you know, there's a fight. We have to go. And so he leaves and she puts that sleeping medicine in his, his shot. He did like a shot. He had like a shot of whiskey poured and she puts sleeping medicine in that. And then she grabs the baby which I was surprised that the baby didn't cry like the entire time, you know? Yeah, I thought that was weird too. Um, but it was, I think it would have made sense if she had given the baby like a drop of the liquid, you know? But you don't see her doing that. I, yeah, don't, I, I thought, oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't think I'd like that because I'd be like a 10 year old administering sleeping potion to a newborn. No, I Is agree. She killing I, him, you know? <laughs> I agree. It's not great, but. Um, I'm just saying as far as like him not crying because babies, that's, they, that's what they do. They cry, you know? So I thought it was very weird that like the baby really didn't cry the entire time after all this, the stuff is going around around, you know, but I don't know. I don't know how little, little tiny newborns are because this baby was like literally just born. So, um, but yeah. And so he comes back and he sees her taking the baby and like tiny little 10 year old Ophelia is carrying this newborn around and like runs to the labyrinth and um kind of gets lost in the labyrinth but then like the walls like open up for her to get to the center um and she's talking to the fawn and I think this is part of the reason why maybe people question whether or not it's real because 
the captain doesn't see the fawn when he's talking to her, you know? He yeah. thinks she's just and talking to herself. Like the captain also part of this scene is really tense for me because he's feeling the effects of the sleeping like the the sleeping medication yeah he's like stumbling and everything and i keep like even though i knew how it ended i kept thinking if only he'd just fall asleep like he if he only he was wasn't fighting it and he'd just fall asleep so you're like hoping that he'll it'll take effect and he'll just fall asleep but he doesn't you know but yeah Yeah. he comes he sees her talking to the fawn and or he sees her talking to nothing it's like a mix of adrenaline with this drug that he's just like able to just barely fight it off yeah which i think with how big his dose was because the doctor said only two drops so what he took was easily like 20 like me like probably 20 times the amount of like what you're supposed to take like it was a huge amount it should have knocked him out for days essentially but i think with all that adrenaline and he's also like feeling like i mean he's he's got two stab wounds and he's got this wound right here on his cheek. I'm like pointing it out like our listeners can see. But like he's got this wound on his cheek. Um, do you ever do that when you're like on the phone? Like you're like gesturing at something and then you're like, oh, right. You can't see what I'm gesturing at. Yes. <laughs> um, I talk with I, my I hands. Just, I, yeah. I, I think it was. I think it was just a mixture of those two that that was like the reason he could hold on to consciousness was that he had she just had so much adrenaline coursing through his veins that it it was preventing him from just totally crashing, you know. Um but um so then he takes the baby from Ophelia's arms and oh no 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 wait. So the well, fawn what 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 were you what were you going to say? No, I think you were going to say it. So the fawn is talking to Ophelia and he's like, okay, great. This is your final task. We're going to use this knife to take a little bit of your brother's blood and open up this portal. And she's like, uh, absolutely not. You're not going to hurt my baby brother. No, you're, you're definitely not going to touch him. And, um, and the fawn is like yelling at her, like what you told me that you'd obey me and you're not obeying me. And now you're, you know, like you said that you wouldn't question anything that I was going to ask you to do. And now you're questioning me. And she's just like, like, she's like, no, I'm not going to let you hurt my baby brother. And, um, and that's when the captain sees her talking to what looks like air. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And takes the baby from her. And because the the because the fawn is like, well, it's a no go then, and he abandons her basically. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the captain he shoots Ophelia. He doesn't even hesitate. He takes no. the baby and then he shoots her. Like, yeah, no, he doesn't. Yeah, it's never like a question of like, is this the right thing to do? It's just like I'm gonna kill a child. I'm going to straight up just kill a child. Yep. And oh, that's that part is so heartbreaking. And she like falls to the ground and is like dying. And then as he's like stumbling out of the, the labyrinth and he sees the rebels waiting and like, he knows he's going to die. And this scene is like, I think probably the best scene in the entire film where he hands he he knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be killed by the rebels. And he gives Mercedes the baby and he gives her the watch. And he says, 
tell my son the time that his father died, that he died bravely. And she goes, he's not even going to know your name. And I, I was like, that. I love it. Damn. Like it, like that hits you. Like, and then they, and then the brother shoots him and it's so, it's so good. It's so good. And it's so emotional. And so like, like, it's so sad. Not, not that the captain dies, but just everything that's happening. But that line is like, it's so iconic, you know? Yeah. The whole movie, the captain was so concerned about having an heir. Yeah. And now his son's never going to know. He's not even going to know your name. Yeah. Like it's really good. It's It's the ultimate revenge. It really is. It's a, it's beautiful. It's mm-hmm. like, it's beautiful is what it is. And, um, and, and then know, the brother Pedro kills the captain with as much remorse as the captain kills Ophelia. Like he just shoots yeah. him. Yeah. And he shoots him like right in like the cheek. Yeah. And like, you see like this grim moment where there's like no blood coming up, but the eye, like his eye, like rolls back into his head and he just collapses on the ground. And I don't know if they, they kind of did this on purpose, but he kind of like died the same way that that little mandrake did, um, like curled up, you know? Mm, I didn't Um, really notice that, but, but to me, to me, I thought of it as like that position is the fetal position. So it's a position of vulnerability. And I think that maybe it was done on purpose to show like he's just as as human as anyone else yeah you know he can die yeah. like everybody all the people exactly. he killed he's just like them yeah 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 and then they go into the labyrinth and they see that ophelia is mortally wounded and she's almost dead and i really love this moment where ophelia like her blood is dripping into the labyrinth so her blood opens the portal and yeah. she gets into this throne room and her father is there and he's sitting on a throne and her mother is there on another throne and they're like welcome you decided to you you shed your own blood instead of your brother's blood and that was the final test and then the fawn is there and he's like take your throne next to your father and i love the part when she first is and she first is in there and she looks at her hands and then she does this like interesting teeter on her heels and i really love that part with her shoes where they teeter back and she's like oh i'm not I'm not wounded anymore. I'm alive, you know? And it's so, I know that that scene that, that was the scene that made you what? That was the scene that made me tear up. Was it? It, Yeah. The, the, the scene that made me tear up and I I can feel myself getting emotional, like talking about this, but was when Mercedes was crying over her Mm -hmm. and she was just like, just this look of like real, real raw pain and real like sorrow over the death of this child and I mean because I think that Ophelia and Mercedes had such a beautiful relationship you know Mercedes was kind of like kind of like almost like a a mother figure to her because Carmen was you know so sick and everything and then when Carmen passes away like like you know Mercedes takes her under her wing and she like tries to get her out of the the mill and everything and uh such a good movie such a great film you know that's pretty much the end of it right yeah and then yeah ophelia smiles right before she dies and it's 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 a great great movie great movie it is yeah so would you recommend it oh for sure (laughs) big time yeah 
And if I recommend if I recommended it to somebody and they made a comment about the subtitles, that would really upset me because my recommendation is for watching foreign movies, I know it's hard. It takes me like I like foreign movies and I like subtitles and it takes me a little while to get used to reading a movie every time. So just give it a chance. You know, it takes a few minutes for me every time I watch a foreign movie to, to, to get the rhythm between reading the lines and seeing the visuals. So just, I would encourage people to just keep trying. Yeah. Um, even somebody like me who has seen plenty of foreign movies, it's still a learning curve when I first put them on. So, you know, don't think that you're like, don't think that you can't do it because anybody can do it. I just yeah. would recommend just keep giving it a shot because the longer you, the longer you watch a movie, you know, a few minutes into it, you'll start finding your rhythm and you'll be able to, you'll be able to enjoy it and read the subtitles. So I just would encourage people to, to do that, to give it a shot and, and expand their horizons in that way. Cause you'll, you're missing out on a lot of really great movies if you if you feel like you can't if you feel intimidated by subtitles just give them a chance is what my advice would be yeah i totally agree with that um i have subtitles on 24 7 because i hate loud i don't like the tv loud so i don't usually um I can't hear a lot of what they're saying anyway because I like having like background noise, like a fan on. So it doesn't bother me as much because I'm used to it. Um, but I would definitely recommend this film. And um, if you like it, I would also recommend checking out The Devil's Backbone, which is also by Guillermo del Toro. And as I said, it is a, compa is a companion piece to Pan's Labyrinth. And um, that one's a little spookier. It's more about ghosts, but it's that one's also a very fantastic film. And it's 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 just a well done, beautiful story. It's probably one of the best films I've ever seen, to be honest with you. Like easily. Pan's Labyrinth or The Devil's Backbone? Oh yeah, for oh, sure. Okay. Or Pan's Labyrinth, I think is one of the best films I've ever seen. Um, the characters are so so good and so well written, and yeah. It's it's a phenomenal film. It's it's well earned its success for sure. Yeah, big yeah. time. So watch it. It's on Netflix. Yep. Watch it. Yes. Yep. I own it and I watched it on Netflix because <laughs> why not? <laughs> yeah, that's what I gotta say. Anyway, so you guys can follow us on um google play we're on um soundcloud we're on itunes and if you like us please give us five stars on itunes we're on spotify and stitcher and we have instagram at watchers of movies and facebook at watchers of movies and we also have a website that's watchers of movies.weebly.com and if you like any of our stuff and you want to give us recommendations or you just want to say hey you know, you can DM us, you can private message us, or you can email us at watchersofmovies at gmail.com. And thank you to Mike for our theme music. Yes, it's amazing. thank you, Mike. His yes. name is Mike Myers, and you can find him on Twitter at the Mike Show 42 Yep. And that's it, right? Bye-bye. Bye-bye.